I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. Get out to the range or get left behind. The time is drawing near. It's high noon for Monday, November 29th, 2021. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator or join the discussion thread at t.me slash I'm reasonable. You can also find me on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator dot substack dot com and the merch site is cancel dot com or go direct shop dot spreadshirt dot com slash cancel dash couture. Today is the 313th day of Barack Obama's third term as served by the half-dead, demented, degenerate, ventriloquist dummy, fake proxy president Joe Biden, who is overwhelmingly compromised by the Chinese Communist Party, the patriarch of one of the most corrupt families in American history, and the father of one of the most despicable sons to ever walk the earth. That's Hunter Biden. So congratulations, commies. You were smart and moral and correct in a bizarro world of your own creation, full of propagandistic nonsense. But all of that is crumbling away. And what we are left in is a world where you are not smart, not correct, and not moral. But sadly, you haven't quite realized it yet. You haven't noticed the shift. You can feel it. We can hear it in your voices and the things you say. And we can see it in the total lack of confidence you project when you talk about all the issues that you used to tell everyone they had to listen to you about. But you haven't really grappled with what that means. And so you are content to continue repeating whatever slogans you are told to repeat even though those very same slogans have already been proven wrong. But the creators of the slogans are reusing them. And you, as a loyal repeater of the slogans, a loyal member of the party of false decorum, you are happy to repeat the slogans again. No matter how embarrassing for you that is. And if you find yourself in the position of having to repeat these slogans again and thinking to yourself, hey, didn't we already agree that this slogan was wrong? Didn't we already shift away from this slogan onto new slogans and pretend that that slogan was something that we never said? Why are they telling us to say it again? Well, my friend, you are on the right path. And I would suggest that you stay on that path. In fact, never leave that path, only continue migrating back toward America by leaving all of those very stupid slogans behind, those very stupid slogans that are based on very stupid and evil communist ideas. Just leave them behind and migrate back to America. All you have to do is make amends with all the people that you have shamed and bullied and slandered and censored and tried to get fired from their jobs. On the way back, when you reach the range... We will accept you with open arms at that point. And we will understand that 
you didn't actually mean to go down that other road you went down. You were just influenced by culture and a bit apathetic. You decided that there were bigger priorities than actually knowing about the things you were talking about. Your morality completely detached from the decisions and the thoughts and the beliefs that you would espouse in public. We understand. It was a big, long process to get you to that point. Luckily, the process out of that is much easier and much shorter. It actually only requires a degree of humility and enough personal fortitude to say, yeah, I guess I was wrong, man. I guess I was wrong. That's all you have to do. And once you do that, you just migrate back to America. And with that, I would love to extend a warm Monday high noon welcome to all of the redeemable communists out there. Hello, commies. Welcome to the show. I'm trying to go a little easier on you lately because I don't want your brains to fully break while migrating back to America. We're trying to provide you something of a soft landing. That's why I've been doing this show the way I have for so long. I know that you think this is mostly about mocking and ridiculing you. And don't get me wrong. It's definitely partly about that. But ultimately, all of us want you back in the project of America, of human liberty and self-governance. But that's going to require some humility and some honesty. It's going to require you saying, yep, I was misled. I swallowed it hook, line and sinker. And I used that to harm other people. But that's not how I see myself. That's not who I am. And I want to be better. And all you have to do to accomplish that goal is start telling the truth. So trust me, Kami, it's better on the other side. Join us, won't you? Now, we are off to one of the biggest news weeks imaginable, honestly. There is so much going on this week, it's actually hard to wrap your head around all of it. And when that sort of thing happens, I try to figure out which issues the spread of information and our information stream can legitimately affect. Which things can the spread of information change just by virtue of that information spreading throughout society? Those are the things that I want to focus my time on. So one of the major news stories today, obviously, is the beginning of the Ghislaine Maxwell trial. And if you're not familiar with who that is, you should be. But that is the madam that was kind of the girlfriend and partner of Jeffrey Epstein. Her father was Robert Maxwell, a media magnate and Mossad asset. And she is accused of trafficking underage women for the sexual pleasure of some of the world's most powerful men, including people like Bill Clinton, Prince Andrew, Bill Gates, and plenty of others. And among that whole scenario was also a world of political compromise as the Epstein properties had cameras in all the rooms and media centers monitoring all that footage, monitoring everything these world leaders did. 
And that trial, of course, has the potential to be explosive. But unfortunately, we can't actually view that trial like we could with the Rittenhouse case. We're going to have to rely to some extent on media reports. One of the prosecutors is corrupt former director of the FBI, James Comey's daughter. But it's hard to say right now how this is going to go, what we're actually going to be able to find out, and then what effect we can have on this situation once we do find out. This has the potential to be one of the biggest stories of all time, but we're not there yet on Monday as the trial opens. So today, at least, I want to focus on some other stuff because, again, all of these stories are just so massive. This morning, we got the news that Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey is stepping down and he He announced this in a company-wide email. Here it is. Hello, team. After almost 16 years of having a role at our company, from co-founder to CEO to chair to exec chair to interim CEO to CEO, I decided it's finally time for me to leave. Why? There's a lot of talk about the importance of a company being founder-led. Ultimately, I believe that's severely limiting and a single point of failure. I've worked hard to ensure this company can break away from its founding and founders. There are three reasons I believe now is the right time. The first is Parag becoming our CEO. The board ran a rigorous process considering all options and unanimously appointed Parag. He's been my choice for some time given how deeply he understands the company and its needs. Parag has been behind every critical decision that helped turn this company around. He's curious, probing, rational, creative, demanding, self-aware, and humble. He leads with heart and soul and is someone I learn from daily. My trust in him as our CEO is bone deep. The second is Brett Taylor agreeing to become our board chair. I asked Brett to join our board when I became CEO, and he's been excellent in every way. He understands entrepreneurship, taking risks, companies at massive scale, technology, product, and he's an engineer. All of the things the board and the company deserve right now. Having Brett in this leadership role gives me a lot of confidence in the strength of our board going forward. You have no idea how happy this makes me. The third is all of you. We have a lot of ambition and potential on this team. Consider this. Parag started here as an engineer who cared deeply about our work, and now he's CEO. I also had a similar path. He did it better. This alone makes me proud. I know that Parag will be able to channel this energy best because he's lived it and knows what it takes. All of you have the potential to change the course of this company for the better. I believe this with all my heart. Parag is CEO starting today. I'm going to serve on the board through my term, May-ish, to help Parag and Brett with the transition. And after that, I'll leave the board. Why not stay or become chair? I believe it's really important to give Parag the space he needs to lead. And back to my previous point, I believe it's critical a company can stand on its own, free of its founder's influence or direction. I want you all to know that this was my decision and I own it. It was a tough one for me, of course. I love this service and company and all of you so much. I'm really sad yet really happy. There aren't many companies that get to this level and there aren't many founders that choose their company over their own ego. I know we'll prove this was the right move. 
We'll have an all-hands meeting tomorrow at 9.05 a.m. Pacific to discuss it all. Until then, thank you all for the trust you've placed in me and for the openness to build that trust in Parag and yourselves. I love you all. P.S. I'm tweeting this email. My one wish is for Twitter Incorporated to become the most transparent company in the world. Hi, Mom. Okay. Well, I have no idea what that last part means. If they were looking to become transparent, they could have done it a long time ago. So you got to just assume that's not true at all. And while some of Jack Dorsey's reasons for leaving that he listed in that email may have some elements of truth, this all seems like total bullshit. Twitter is facing lawsuits all over the place. And of course, one of those is the Trump lawsuit against Twitter for censoring and then banning the president of the United States of America. But there is much more going on there. There are other lawsuits they have right now about copyright infringements, about leaving channels open that were used for child pornography and human trafficking. There is a lot of bad stuff going on at all of the big tech companies. Now, I want to play a clip of Ted Cruz questioning Jack Dorsey in some Senate testimony. And this is from late 2020. Mr. Dorsey, does Twitter have the ability to influence elections? No. You don't believe Twitter has any ability to influence elections? No, we are one part of a spectrum of communication channels that people have. So you're testified to this committee right now that, that, that Twitter, when it silences people, when it censors people, when it blocks political speech, that has no impact on elections? People, people have choice of other communication channels. With which... not, if, not if they don't hear information. If you don't think you have the power to influence elections, why do you block anything? Uh, well, we have policies that are focused on making sure that more voices on the platform are possible. We see a lot of abuse and harassment, which ends up silencing people and having them leave from the platform. All right, Mr. Dorsey, I find your opening questions, your opening answers absurd on their face. So Dorsey testified that Twitter does not have the ability to influence the outcome of elections. And Cruz makes a good point asking him, then why do you block anything? Because if Twitter's actions don't have an impact in the real world, then what is the justification for them blocking what they call misinformation and disinformation, whether it's about an issue related to the election or about coronavirus or about anything else? They must believe that the wrong information getting into the minds of the public has an effect in the real world, one that they think is undesirable. And this was never more true than when they censored the New York Post for reporting on Hunter Biden's very real laptop. And Miranda Devine has a couple of pieces today in the New York Post that I want to share with you. Miranda Devine recently released the book, The Laptop from Hell, and she has been studying Hunter Biden's laptop throughout the last year. She has done good work on it, but I am much more interested in seeing what 
Garrett Ziegler and Marco Polo come up with on their actual deep dive into the crimes evidenced on that laptop. But this is the first piece. And this actually came out last night from Miranda Devine. Media helped hide the real Joe Biden by censoring Hunter stories. The president's plummeting popularity, especially among independents, reflects a growing realization among voters that Joe Biden is not the man they thought they had voted for. There's a good reason for their disenchantment. They were denied the normal due diligence the media is supposed to conduct on presidential candidates. It's been more than a year since The Post published the first of a series of damning stories about then-candidate Biden based on material on his son Hunter's abandoned laptop. It has been more than a year since Facebook and Twitter colluded with Democrat-friendly media to censor a story that reflected badly on their preferred candidate less than three weeks before the 2020 election. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey blithely admitted after the election that locking the Post's account for two weeks on the basis of a non-existent hacking offense was a mistake. Facebook has never revealed the results of the fact check it used as a pretext for blocking the post. It likely never occurred because Facebook never contacted key recipients of emails we published from the laptop. But the damage was done. The coordinated censorship of America's oldest newspaper with more than 80 million readers online alone amounted to election interference. If the full story of the Biden's international influence peddling scheme had been told before the election, polls indicate it may have affected the result. Almost 50 percent of Biden voters knew nothing about Hunter's laptop scandal, according to polling conducted after the election by the Media Research Center. And almost 10 percent say they would not have voted for Biden had they known. With fewer than 45,000 votes in three states deciding the outcome, it's not unreasonable to suggest that suppression of the Post stories won Biden the election and denied voters the truth about his character. This is the importance of Hunter's laptop and why it refuses to be shoved down the memory hole where other inconvenient truths go to die. It provides a rare and detailed window onto the corruption that is Washington's original sin as conducted on a global scale by one of its most calculating practitioners. The sordid secret vices of a son of political privilege are an incongruous backdrop to the monumental oil and gas deals Hunter was mixed up in around the world. A drug-addled neophyte bumbling through geopolitical minefields with secret service in tow. Hunter's encounters with cutthroat oligarchs in Monte Carlo, Lake Como, Hong Kong, and Shanghai are documented in vivid detail on his laptop. It takes us from a billionaire's beach villa in Acapulco to the desolate oil fields of Kazakhstan, from a judo competition in Budapest with Vladimir Putin to dinner in Beijing with Xi Jinping. A Chinese tycoon cooks Hunter dinner in his new $50 million penthouse. A Ukrainian oligarch flies him to his fishing shack in Norway. Beautiful Russian escorts and thieving drug dealers float through his self-imposed exile on Sunset Boulevard amid slapstick scenes as crackhead Hunter comes unstuck and his hapless uncle Jim Biden rides into the rescue. Text messages chronicling the disintegration of Hunter's love affair with his brother's widow, Hallie Biden, are laced with flashbacks to the pain of a troubled childhood. Eye-popping financial windfalls are shaded by the grim fate of Chinese business partners who wind up missing, presumed dead. It's a life of greed and luxury in a shadowy world of kleptocrat oligarchs whom law enforcement can't touch. Despite his secret debaucheries, Hunter was acutely aware of what he brought to the table, access to his powerful father. 
The Biden family business is documented in eye-popping detail in the 11 gigabyte trove. Over nine years from 2010 to 2019, the laptop shadows Joe's life as the globetrotting vice president of the Obama administration, the favored trading senator from Delaware who would go on to become leader of the free world. Much of the Post's reporting from the past year has been quietly accepted as accurate, and it even was admitted by Hunter in his 2021 addiction memoir. The White House confirmed our reporting when it admitted to a Washington Post fact checker that then VP Biden did attend a dinner attended by Hunter's business associates from Ukraine, Russia and Kazakhstan on April 16th, 2015, in a private room at Cafe Milano in Washington, D.C. Yes, Joe went to the dinner, the White House admitted, but only briefly and not for any nefarious purpose, of course. You would think reporters at organs such as USA Today and The Washington Post might be miffed about being lied to by Biden's campaign, which categorically denied any such meeting had taken place. I've never spoken to my son about his overseas business dealings, candidate Biden said angrily, as if it were an affront to question his integrity. But few in the media showed any interest in holding him to account and simply ignored our reporting. The killer blow came five days after the Post's expose from 50 former senior intelligence officials led by former CIA director John Brennan and director of national intelligence James Clapper. Using the institutional weight of their powerful former roles, they published a letter in Politico that claimed the material on Hunter's laptop, quote, has all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation, end quote, although not one of them had seen any of it. This was partisan propaganda designed to disparage the Post's reporting and dissuade the rest of the media from looking deeper. The Brennan letter was a lifeline to Joe Biden three days before his final debate against a fired up President Donald Trump. Joe, they're calling you a corrupt politician, said Trump. Take a look at the laptop from hell. Biden relied entirely on the Brennan letter to dismiss the laptop stories. There are 50 former national intelligence folks who said that what he's accusing me of is a Russian plan. They have said this is a bunch of garbage. But the Post's reporting is held up. Corroborated from multiple angles, Hunter's laptop tells an alarming story of the national interest sold out for personal gain at the highest level, in particular to communist China, America's greatest strategic foe. The conclusion is inescapable. The president cannot extricate his family's money-making schemes from America's foreign policy imperatives. And let's have a look at her other article. This one is from this morning. Because it's important to understand that what's on Hunter Biden's laptop is actually indisputable proof of an international criminal organization at work. And what Joe Biden is doing and has done is selling out American interests for personal financial gain. But of course, he's not the only one benefiting because no one would pay for Joe Biden to do these things and have Hunter Biden facilitate them and Jim Biden facilitate them if there wasn't a bigger advantage coming their way. And the there in many of these cases is the Chinese Communist Party, who right now, and last year at this time as well, have two million Muslim Uyghurs in concentration camps. This is widely reported. And of course, it is known by Joe Biden. And it was then. But it didn't stop him from doing business with the CCP and CCP affiliated organizations. And it hasn't stopped him from acting in ways that benefit China in his time as fake president. 
So this is Devine's other article. Joe Biden was involved in a deal with a Chinese giant and was expecting a 10% cut. Hunter Biden and his uncle Jim Biden were already waiting for Tony Bobolinsky in the lobby bar of the Beverly Hilton when he arrived at 10 p.m. May 2nd, 2017. The Bidens had chose a discreet couch behind a thick marble column where they could see everyone who walked in the front entrance. Joe Biden, who had left the vice president's office a little more than three months before, was flying into Los Angeles to speak at the prestigious Milken Institute Global Conference and would be joining them at the bar within the hour. For Bobolinsky, 48, a third generation Navy veteran and Democrat donor, it would be his first meeting with Joe Biden. And he was conscious that he was being vetted for a trusted role orchestrating the Biden family's existing joint venture with Chinese energy conglomerate CEFC. Dad not in now until 11, Hunter wrote in a WhatsApp message. Let's me, you and Jim meet at 10 at Beverly Hilton where he's staying. When Bobolinsky arrived at the bar, Uncle Jim, seven years younger than his brother and more heavy set, but still a dead ringer for Joe, greeted him like an old friend, although it was the first time they'd met. At that hour, the only other person in the bar was casino operator Steve Wynn, sitting with a woman on the other side of the room. Hunter and Bobolinsky drank water while Jim ordered a club sandwich with fries and explained that the meeting with Joe was strictly, quote unquote, high level. We will not go into any detail about the business, said Hunter. I just want my dad to be comfortable with you. At 10.38 p.m., Joe arrived through the hotel's front entrance with his Secret Service entourage, and Hunter jumped up to intercept him. Five minutes later, he brought his father to the table. Bobolinsky stood up to shake Joe's hand. This is Tony, Dad, said Hunter, the individual I told you about that's helping us with the business that we're working on with the Chinese. Joe began by talking about the Biden family, their tragedies, and his political career. Bobolinsky described his background as captain of the Penn State wrestling team and briefly outlined an impressive resume, including as a nuclear engineer and instructor in the Navy's elite nuclear power training command with a high-level security clearance. Thank you for your service, Joe said. Thank you for helping my son. Jim and Hunter told Joe that Bobolinsky had been working hard on the Chinese deal, and Joe said, My son and my brother trust you emphatically, so I trust you. Bobolinsky had passed the test. It was a crucial meeting because for the first time, an outsider would see the extent to which Joe was involved in Hunter and Jim's international business. Joe was the final decision maker. Nothing important was done without his agreement. The conversation wrapped up within 45 minutes. Joe was tired, but he invited Bobolinsky to meet him again at 8.30 a.m. the next day in the hotel ballroom to hear him speak at the Milken confab of chief executives, wealthy investors, and fund managers. As soon as he got home, Bobolinsky messaged Jim Biden on WhatsApp at 11.40 p.m. Great to meet you and spend some time together. Please thank Joe for his time. Was great to talk. Thanks. The next morning, Bobolinsky went back to the Beverly Hilton and sat at the head table, listening to Joe talk on stage with L.A. billionaire and notorious inside trader Michael Milken. Backstage afterwards, Joe asked, what did you think of my speech? They walked outside together to his waiting car and shook hands. Keep an eye on my son and brother and look out for my family, Joe told him. Bobolinsky then headed back across Santa Monica Boulevard to the Peninsula Hotel to meet Jim, who was sitting alone in a blue and white cabana by the rooftop pool on a glorious sunny day. For two hours, he was regaled with Biden family folklore, going back to Joe's first Senate election in Delaware in 1972, when Jim, then 23, dabbling in the nightclub business after dropping out of the University of Delaware, became his brother's chief fundraiser. 
Jim filled him in on the efforts he and Hunter made for CEFC the past two years, leveraging Joe's name to advance the Chinese Communist Party's Belt and Road agenda around the world. As Jim talked, Bobolinsky marveled at the political risk to Joe's career if his family's flagrant influence peddling during his vice presidency came to light. How are you guys getting away with this? He finally asked. Aren't you concerned that you're going to put your brother's 2020 presidential campaign at risk? You know, the Chinese, the stuff that you guys have been doing already in 2015 and 2016 around the world. Jim chuckled and looked knowingly at Bobolinsky. Plausible deniability, he said, using a term coined by the CIA during the Kennedy administration to describe the practice of keeping the president uninformed about illegal or unsavory activity so he can plausibly deny knowing anything if it becomes public knowledge. Bobolinsky understood Jim meant that Joe knew what his family was doing in his name, but was insulated from the dirty details. It was why Jim and Hunter had instructed Bobolinsky the previous night to keep the business talk with Joe at a vague high level. Occasionally, they would let their guard down, but the family was paranoid about keeping Joe's involvement quiet, Bobolinsky would be told. He soon learned to decode the euphemisms related to Joe, which made him a dangerous foe three years later when he became so disgusted that he blew the whistle on the shady enterprise. I've seen Vice President Biden saying he never talked to Hunter about his business, Bobolinsky would say in a bombshell statement to the New York Post's Michael Goodwin on October 22nd, 2020, a few days after the paper began publishing material from Hunter's laptop. I've seen firsthand that that's not true because it wasn't just Hunter's business. They said they were putting the Biden family name and its legacy on the line. I don't have a political axe to grind. I just saw behind the Biden curtain and I grew concerned with what I saw. The Biden family aggressively leveraged the Biden family name to make millions of dollars from foreign entities, even though some were from communist controlled China. Less than two weeks after meeting Joe Biden, Bobolinsky incorporated Sinohawk Holdings LLC on May 15th, 2017. Having decided against Hunter's suggestion, they call it CFC America. It would be a global investment firm seeded with $10 million of Chinese money that would buy projects in the U.S. and around the world in global and or domestic infrastructure, energy, financial services, and other strategic sectors, said the contract he had drawn up. Sinohawk would be 50% owned by Yi Jianming, chairman of CEFC, through a Delaware-incorporated CEFC entity, Hudson West 4 LLC. The other 50% would be owned by Oneida Holdings, LLC, another Delaware firm set up by Bobolinsky. Oneida would be split according to an email sent by James Gilliar to the group on May 13th, 2017, laying out the distribution of shares. The equity will be distributed as follows, wrote Gilliar, listing the shares and percentages. 20 to H, that's Hunter. 20 to RW, Walker. 20 to JG, that's James Gilliar. 20 to Tony Bobolinsky, 10 to Jim Biden, and 10 held by H for the big guy. Three years later, Bobolinsky would tell the world that there is no question that the big guy is Joe Biden. Hunter Biden called his dad the big guy or my chairman and frequently referenced asking him for his sign off or advice on various potential deals that we were discussing. Joe was called the big guy in other emails on Hunter's laptop or in WhatsApp messages on Bobolinsky's phones. Gilliar warned Bobolinsky in a WhatsApp message on May 20th about the need for discretion about Joe's role. Don't mention Joe being involved. It's only when you are face to face. I know you know that, but they are paranoid. 
Bobolinsky, already frustrated by Hunter's demands, replied, OK, they should be paranoid about things. And that's from Miranda Devine's book, Laptop from Hell. Now, what would have happened if the American public had actually known this last year? Well, the main thing is that it would have made it even that much harder for them to cheat enough to put Joe Biden in his position as fake president. And even if they had come up with enough fake votes to make that happen, it would have been still harder for them to sell the American public on the idea that Joe Biden actually did win fair and square and that all claims of election fraud were the big lie. And of course, Twitter had a huge role in making sure that the American public could not find out about this story if they were the sorts of people who are addicted to the central narrative. They made sure that this story could not enter the central narrative. They gave cover to former corrupt intelligence officials who put out a letter full of obvious untruth and obfuscation. They had no proof anywhere at any time that the laptop was anything but hunters and the director of national intelligence, John Ratcliffe at the time had come out and said that they believed that it was hunters. They were the only ones that actually had intelligence on the laptop. The former intelligence officials had no involvement in the situation. They just tried to convince the public that it sounds to them like the sort of thing the Russians would do. And if you actually read the letter, it's obvious in the letter that they weren't making any actual informed declarative statements. But that didn't matter because the headlines went out. 50 former top intelligence officials say that Hunter Biden's laptop is Russian disinformation. And then Joe Biden repeated it in the debate, knowing full well that he was lying to the American people about something of critical importance. But this is who Joe Biden is, and it's who Hunter Biden is, and it's who these top former intelligence officials are, and it's who Twitter is. And sadly, it's who many of the Joe Biden voters are, and especially were, because a lot of them have realized since then what a grave moral error they made. They were able to allow that statement, that total nonsense about Russian disinformation be the story about the Hunter Biden laptop. And the way it was able to stay the story about the laptop was that the real story, the real reporting could not get out there for people to see because they had control of enough of the information stream at that point that they were able to prevent it. Twitter ran cover for this. And they did so intentionally and at the behest of people in the American government. We already know that the big tech platforms had portals for officials of the government around the country, in the states and in the federal government to be able to contact them directly and tell them what stuff needs to come down. That all came out in a judicial watch FOIA like six months ago. And Dr. Shiva found evidence of the same in his court battles with big tech. Jack Dorsey oversaw this. He knew exactly what was going on and he misled the American people about it in his Senate testimony. I don't think that there can be any doubt in anyone's mind that that censorship not only did affect 
the outcome of the election, leaving the obvious election fraud aside, but that it was designed intentionally to do so. And that, again, this isn't the only instance of them using their censorship mechanisms to affect the outcome of politics in a way that would benefit them, benefit a particular political party, and also benefit foreign interests. Okay? The entire coronavirus period was dominated by the same sort of censorship and always for the benefit of one political viewpoint, that of the Democrat Communist Party, the Uniparty and global communism at large. In the post-election period, the big tech companies used the censorship mechanisms to remove and obscure conversations about the obvious and overwhelming evidence of election fraud which protected companies like Dominion Voting Systems and their foreign investors that they do have. And a lot of the conversations I've been having in the past couple of weeks, many of them face-to-face, which obviously makes the conversations much better, but many of the conversations I've had are with people who are either Biden voters who are not completely red-pilled or who are completely red-pilled but don't think that this situation has any sort of positive resolution. And that's where we usually depart because, you know, maybe it's Patel Patriots devolution in play, or maybe it's some of Trump's executive orders or a combination of all those things. But what's happening now is that all of these different levels of interference are being pushed to the forefront. People are going to understand one way or another what happened. And so then it's up to all of us to make sure that everybody does understand what happened and everybody does want to see a real resolution. People need to understand that that stuff is within our control as the people, as long as we are on the same page and pushing for action. So Jack Dorsey is stepping down. He is being replaced by a man named Parag Agrawal. And National Pulse just published a piece today Here's the headline. Twitter's new CEO, Parag Agrawal, has disturbing anti-American, anti-white tweet history. With Twitter founder Jack Dorsey stepping down as CEO, it was announced that Parag Agrawal, the company's current chief technology officer, will take over the leadership role. Agrawal, concerningly, is a vocal opponent of free speech and the First Amendment and has sent tweets about all white people being racist. They cite a tweet from October 26, 2010. If they are not going to make a distinction between Muslims and extremists, then why should I distinguish between white people and racists? Very woke. An Indian-born migrant has used his tenure as Twitter's tech chief to lead research on how best to silence voices across the platform under the myth of fake news and dismiss the ideals America was founded upon, often quoting his favorite leftist celebrities. In a November 2020 interview, Agrawal said the following, as reported by multiple sources online. This tweet is from Disclosed TV News. Former CTO and new Twitter CEO Agrawal in November 2020 interview. Our role is not to be bound by the First Amendment, focusing less on thinking about free speech, but thinking about how the times have changed. Eleven years prior, Agrawal's sentiment was very different showing his evolution to his current mindset toward freedom in the free world. He tweeted on April 17th, 2010. I'm not sure what is more troubling, death of free speech or that, quote, peace in society, end quote, is threatened 
if a book is not banned. Agarwal's work placed him at the helm of Project Blue Sky. The research project was launched under the guise of establishing decentralized standards, supporting social media companies in the promotion of posts and providing users with greater control over the content they see. Blue Sky was further marketed as making it easier for social media networks to enforce restrictions against hate speech and other forms of online abuse. Agrawal tweeted on April 6, 2010, the true axis of evil in America is the genius of our marketing combined with the stupidity of our people. And that's a quote from Bill Maher. And it's funny because Bill Maher has fully succumbed to this propagandistic marketing and has become a very, very stupid person. In 2019, Twitter purchased Fabula AI, an alleged machine learning startup that helped spot fake news. The details of the Aqua Hire deal were not made public. At the time, Agarwal said the purchase will, quote, improve the health of the conversation, end quote, on Twitter. The purchase occurred prior to the 2020 presidential elections, helping Twitter, quote, weed out the bad eggs, end quote, which is, you know, mixing metaphors. I think the only person to ever weed out eggs is uh, Super Mario. Many leading experts have noted that Agrawal's new leadership position in Twitter will make the platform significantly worse for censorship. Central narrative smart guy. This is my commentary, not the national pulses. But uh, Cigar and Jetty wrote, Jack was the last of the tech CEOs who, at least on a personal level, was committed to free speech. His departure is probably going to make Twitter a lot worse for censorship, which is truly saying something. Meanwhile, competitor social media firm Getter CEO Jason Miller said of the changes at Twitter, as the CEO of a social media startup, I know how difficult it is to run the company day to day. It must be even harder when you're always trying to find new ways to trample freedom of speech. But for years, Jack Dorsey has been the master of multitasking, censoring opinions he doesn't like, canceling users, silencing one of America's oldest newspapers and unfairly influencing a presidential election. Dorsey's strangling of free expression is why Getter needs to exist. And for that, I suppose we should all be grateful. Without the crushing oppression and virtue signaling of the big tech oligarchs, millions of people from around the world wouldn't be searching for a new social media home. Unlike Dorsey, Getter is here to stay and we will always protect the rights of people to speak their minds. So I know many people will think of Agrawal's ascent to CEO of Twitter may make the censorship at Twitter even worse, and they might be right. It really might get worse over there. But to me, I just think this is good because this stuff becomes more obvious. The more they censor, the more people they censor, those people will finally have to deal with the realization that they are not immune from all of this stuff that they have just kind of let slip by because it's not affecting them. And that is ultimately the biggest problem we've been dealing with throughout this time. And the thing that is holding back this cultural awakening that we are experiencing, people will not accept what is going on until it affects them directly. And so as bad as it may seem that these restrictions seem to be increasing, the benefit is that every time they do, more people are affected and more people wake up to the totality of what is happening. So we've got Maxwell, we've got Twitter, Jussie Smollett's trial for his execution of a race hoax begins today. We've got the brand new, very scary variant 
which seems like it's not going to work. I don't think that they're going to be able to achieve a whole lot from this. And part of the reason I think that is because people have to a large degree tuned out the mainstream media, which is always pushing the Democrat Communist Party narrative and the Uniparty narrative. There is an article in PJ Media over the weekend that I highlighted in the Telegram feed, and I actually got a little shout out on X-22 this weekend, which I like, but I want to add on a little bit to what Dave commented. I was discussing this article here. It's by Matt Margolis in PJ Media, November 26th. The headline is, we're fucked, says Dem strategist as focus groups show party in shambles. The Democrats' political problems go beyond their embarrassing defeat in Virginia, reports Politico, as a new poll shows that the Democrat brand has been destroyed over the past 10 months. A liberal group, Third Way, spoke with suburban Virginia focus groups, and and what they found is a disaster for their party. Voters couldn't name anything the Democrats had done, except a few who said we passed the infrastructure bill, Third Way and its pollsters found. According to the report, most of the Biden voters they spoke with could not articulate what Democrats stand for. They could also not say what they are doing in Washington besides fighting. Democrats have pursued their most radical agenda yet, despite their razor-thin majorities in the House and Senate, making passage of legislation difficult as they've struggled to appease both the moderate and socialist wings of the party. Despite claiming he would bring Democrats and Republicans together in compromise, Biden has struggled to even get all of his own party on board for key parts of his agenda. Just one year after Democrats kicked Donald Trump from the White House, it's not obvious to many voters what Democrats are doing now that they're in charge, Politico explains. The House did pass a trimmed down social spending package last week, but one Democrat strategist who advises major donors told Politico, it's too late, we're fucked. Voters believe the economy is bad and no amount of stats can change their mind, at least in the short term, the third way report said. Jobs numbers, wage numbers, and the number of people we've put back to work don't move them. We should still talk about these more, the wage numbers and the back to work numbers, but we should realize that they will have limited impact when people are seeing help wanted signs all over Main Street, restaurant sections closed for lack of workers, rising prices and supply disruptions. Even where things are getting better, Biden doesn't get credit. Okay. And this is the part I focus on in that post. I want to read the first sentence again and then this last sentence again. Voters believe the economy is bad and no amount of stats can change their mind. And then he concludes with, even where things are getting better, Biden doesn't get credit. All right. So what's being said here, the underlying message is that they are not able to convince the public that their narrative is correct in any way. And that's because the public is seeing the reality in front of them. That shows you that what they are saying simply isn't true. They are used to existing in a media climate where they can just pull stats from this study or that study and make a headline out of that statistic and try to convince the American public that things are actually going exactly the way they wanted them to go. Based on this or that metric, they expect people to accept, oh, well, they're saying that this is true. So I guess it must be despite my own experience and despite the experience of people I know. For instance, 
they continue to say that the vaccines are very safe and very effective. But they're also trying to push booster shots because they know the vaccines are not effective. And they are, of course, censoring and hiding all the statistics that say that the vaccines aren't at all safe either. But the public just is not buying what they're selling about these issues. And this last sentence, even where things are getting better, Biden doesn't get credit. Now, the thing is, there are no areas where things are getting better. All of those areas are completely invented by these people through lying about studies, through the idea that the polling really does support their policy positions when the polling obviously does not. They ask questions to elicit specific answers to make it sound like the elements of their agenda actually are popular. Like they'll ask a question that says, do you believe that Americans should have more access to childcare?" And people will be like, uh, yeah, all right, that sounds good. But they're not going to tell you that their plan to give Americans more access to childcare is by taking over more and more and more of American social life and taking your children into government care and control at much earlier ages and that your taxes will increase as a result and that this will all be part of a much larger spending package that doesn't actually help any Americans at all. So to say the one thing in isolation, yes, Americans should have more access to childcare. That's a statement a lot of people will agree with, but it's also virtually meaningless because that's not what they're doing and everyone knows it. And so once people have read reports about how these agenda priorities will actually be affected in the real world, they reject the program. No matter how many times they are told that most experts agree that or this study says that it's no longer being believed. The narratives they use are there to convince people that their reality is actually something different than it is or that maybe their reality personally is the only place that problem exists, but all their neighbors and society at large, well, they're all doing just great. No one buys it anymore. And that same thought process is replicated over and over and over and over and over again in every single issue. And with that in mind, I want to highlight one of the biggest issues of the week that I think is also the most likely to be ignored and also the one that the people can influence the most. And of course, that is the debt limit being reached on Friday. This is from Breitbart, federal government to run out of money in four days amid over full Senate schedule. And the reporter on this article is Wendell Husebo. The federal government will run out of money on Friday amid a jammed Senate schedule in December that may further delay the passage of the $1.9 trillion reconciliation package into next year. Along with funding the government in December, the Democrat-controlled Senate must raise the debt ceiling before December 15th and pass the National Defense Authorization Act, a typically bipartisan piece of legislation for 60 years. The reconciliation package is also in the mix to be pushed through the chamber, though the clogged Senate calendar may delay the passage until January. Funding the government, however, is the most immediate crisis for Senate Democrats. Democrats' strategy may be to introduce a stopgap funding bill potentially on Wednesday. The stopgap funding would need approval from Senate Republicans and Senator Mitch McConnell, but that isn't expected to be a major problem. 
Punchbowl News reported. If Republicans cave and help Democrats fund the government, the funding may reportedly last until the last week in January. Raising the debt ceiling is the next obstacle Democrats face in December. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said the government can pay its bills until approximately December 15th. How the Democrats may raise the debt ceiling is still unknown. Senate Democrats seem opposed to raising it through the reconciliation package and the NDAA. In October, McConnell promised not to help the Democrats raise the debt ceiling over Majority Leader Chuck Schumer's childish behavior on the Senate floor. Breitbart News reported. McConnell wrote to Biden that Schumer poisoned the well in a Thursday rant on the Senate floor by suggesting, quote, Republicans played a risky and partisan game with the debt ceiling. And I am glad their brinksmanship didn't work, Schumer said Thursday, not acknowledging that McConnell helped Schumer raise the debt ceiling with 11 votes. After Schumer's speech, Republicans and Senator Joe Manchin confronted Schumer about the tirade. Manchin reportedly told Schumer his speech was, quote, fucking stupid, end quote. As a result of the offensive partisan speech, McConnell told the White House he will not be part of any additional assistance in increasing the debt limit. But of course, that is probably completely false because Mitch McConnell is a uniparty rhino who is glad to help the fake administration do whatever they need to do. And nothing could be more obvious. The NDAA is also a major piece of legislation requiring Senate approval. Republicans and Democrats were not able to agree on the measure before Thanksgiving, so debate will continue into December. The measures under consideration are, quote, repealing the 1991 and 2002 Iraq AUMFs, women in the draft, China, Afghanistan, and other measures impacting the military industrial complex. The deliberation over the critical articles of legislation may delay President Biden's massive tax and spend reconciliation package until 2022. After the House passed its version of the reconciliation package in mid-November, the Senate must weigh the House's version. Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Kirsten Sinema are unlikely to vote for the House's package as is, as it is chock full of far left goodies such as subsidized prescription drugs, enhanced Medicare coverage, two free years of community college, amnesty, free housing and free child care. And again, all of those items in isolation and described a certain way can find some level of public support in polling. But when you take the totality of what this is, and the American public's set of priorities at large, this stuff does not appear anywhere. Now, let's check in with Nazi doctor Anthony Fauci, who made appearances on all the Sunday shows to advertise the new very scary variant that they are calling uh, Omicron. It was going to be new, but maybe they figured that would be too confusing calling it the new variant. So they called it Omicron variant because they didn't want to call it the Xi variant. Now, Xi in the Greek alphabet is spelled XI. XI is also how you spell Xi, like Xi Jinping, who is the leader of China and the Chinese Communist Party. It just would not be okay if the new variant was named after him. And so the World Health Community has decided to name it something else. Because, of course, this is all about branding. It's not science. It's not public health. It's just branding. They want to sell more shots. They want to get more shots in more arms. They want more masking. They want more lockdowns. 
And most of all, they want a cover story for why they are so bad at everything and life for nearly every American is getting markedly worse under the fake administration. But let's see what the Nazi doctor has to say. Why do you feel so strongly about that, about staying on the job when you become, I mean, you were personally, not just rhetorically, threatened your security, your safety, your family. How did you deal with that? I dealt with it by focusing on what my job is. From the time that I went into medicine to the right now where I am at my age, my job has been totally focused on doing what I can with the talents and the influence I had to make scientific advances to protect the health of the American public. So anybody who spends lies and threatens and all that theater that goes on with some of the investigations and the congressional committees and the Rand Pauls and all that other nonsense. That's noise, Margaret. That's noise. I know what my job is. Senator Cruz told the attorney general you should be prosecuted. Yeah. (laughs) I have to laugh at that. (laughs) I should be prosecuted. What happened on January 6th, Senator? (laughs) Do you think that this is about making you a scapegoat to deflect from President Trump. Of course. You have to be asleep not to figure that one out. Well, there are a lot of Republican senators uh, taking aim at this. That's okay. I'm just going to do my job. And I'm going to be saving lives, and they're going to be lying. It seems another layer of danger to play politics around matters of life and death. Exactly. Exactly. And to me, that's, that's... unbelievably bad because all I want to do is save people's lives. I mean, anybody who's looking at this carefully realizes that there's a distinct anti-science flavor to this. So if they get up and criticize science, nobody's going to know what they're talking about. But if they get up and really aim their bullets at Tony Fauci, well, people could recognize there's a person there. So it's easy to criticize, but they're really criticizing science because I represent science, that's dangerous. To me, that's more dangerous than the slings and the arrows that get thrown at me. And if you damage science, you are doing something very detrimental to society long after I leave. So there we have it. Anthony Fauci, the Oracle of Science, is once again stating that attacking him Criticizing him is, in fact, criticizing science. And he said that one minute after he deflected from lying to Congress by claiming that somehow Senator Cruz is, I don't know, responsible for January 6th, an incident that isn't even understood in the central narrative an incident described in the central narrative as falsely as the COVID scenario has been? Is he trying to say that Senator Cruz should be prosecuted for standing up and allowing the objections to the fraudulent election? And what is scientific about that response? Anthony Fauci could actually address the substance of the claim that he lied to Congress. He could come out and try to tell people why both things he said were true and match reality, but he can't do that because he did lie to Congress and nothing could be more obvious. And of course, it's easy to 
go after Fauci for the ridiculous statement that he represents science because there is virtually nothing that Anthony Fauci has said in this entire period from the beginning that he hasn't also said the opposite of and pretty much none of it has ever been supported by legitimate data that he shares with the American public. That just isn't how he communicates. And of course, part of that is because he is always lying. And if you don't believe that he is always lying, then I encourage you to try to think of one single piece of advice that Anthony Fauci has given the American people or given to President Donald Trump or fake President Joe Biden that has actually worked in any discernible way. He has taken multiple positions on masking. None of that has worked anywhere in the United States or anywhere in the world. He has taken multiple positions on lockdowns. Lockdowns have done absolutely nothing. He has taken multiple positions on travel restrictions. He has outright lied about therapeutics, talking about how the therapeutics that actually work really well are actually dangerous somehow. He doesn't go out on television and tell people, no, ivermectin is not merely a horse dewormer. It is actually a very effective antiparasitic that has saved lives all across the globe. It is prescribed for use in humans. It is prescribed by doctors. And he has been dead wrong about every single thing he said about these vaccines. He has told people that with the vaccine, which is not a vaccine, you won't get sick. He said you won't transmit it. He said you won't get seriously ill. And he said you won't die. None of those things are true. He talked about how the vaccines could help with herd immunity. That's not true at all. He said we would reach herd immunity when we got 75% and then 80 and then 90% of the public vaccinated. But that was never going to happen, of course. And they would have known that right away. In fact, they haven't even achieved those numbers within Anthony Fauci's own organization, nor the CDC. And a vaccine can't help with herd immunity if it doesn't prevent you from getting or spreading a virus. He consistently obfuscates on the effectiveness of natural immunity. And we just discussed last week how Scott Atlas, who was on the coronavirus task force for a time in the Trump White House, had said that Fauci and Burks and Redfield were not even really familiar with the literature about the coronavirus, about therapeutics, and about everything else. They are executing a narrative. There is nothing more they are doing than executing a narrative. He has lied about gain-of-function research. He has lied about funding gain-of-function research through Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance. He has lied about the origin of the virus. He has dismissed Claims that revolve around the Wuhan lab, despite the overwhelming proof and evidence that that is indeed where it came from. He still obfuscates convincing people that the virus emerged naturally. And he has lied about his own prior statements on camera that everyone can see simply because he knows that the people on his side will always protect him. And I would encourage you to actually go watch that clip. It is on the Face the Nation Twitter uh, yesterday, November 28th at 11.03 a.m. Because it's important to watch Anthony Fauci lie, to recognize a liar when you see one. And all that fake laughing when she asked 
about Ted Cruz's statement. That's the response of a very, very guilty man who is trying to deflect and change the conversation. So instead of taking the question seriously and answering it seriously, as a person of the science would do, he laughed it off and pretended that anyone who thought that at all must be crazy. Luckily, I think the country is moving on from Anthony Fauci. You know, some of these conversations I've had over the last couple of weeks, you bring up Fauci and now, not a year ago, not a year and a half ago, but now these same communists and redeemable communists will laugh and scoff and say, hey, it's not about Fauci. Oh, okay. It's not about Fauci now because now it being about Fauci is untenable for you. You have just come to terms with the fact that Anthony Fauci is no longer credible and everyone knows it. You will just say all the same things Anthony Fauci says as if somehow they exist outside of Anthony Fauci, as if the things he says really are representative of the current state of the science about the disease. But it turns out they're not. And it turns out Anthony Fauci actually is a liar. And it turns out you could have known that from the beginning just by observing all of this with your own eyes, thinking independently and coming to your own conclusions. All of those conclusions were not hard to come by. All of those conclusions are actually supportable and supported by available science. And at some point, I hope these people actually contend with the fact that they have supported all of this and they make it possible for people like Anthony Fauci to continue and for this total bullshit story to continue. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. Goodbye. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range.
acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!